So uh, I'll go ahead and kick it off. Uh, as always, thank you for joining the Deleuze and Guattari Quarantine Collective and our ongoing readings, the works of those titular thinkers. Uh, this is going to be another of our roundtable discussions. We're going to be doing a few more after this as well as we try to parse some of the more complicated ideas from Anti-Oedipus. Uh, today we are taking on the three syntheses. Give me two seconds. I need to shut my door. The dog came in. Two seconds. Yes, yes. Oh, my God, I was muted. I literally have been talking for two minutes. Um, how's everyone doing? It's that, that kind of Monday. Uh, as I was saying, uh, this will be another of our roundtable discussions. We try to parse some of the more complicated ideas from Anti-Oedipus. Uh, today, we're going to take on the three syntheses of the unconscious and their implications in our everyday experience, as well as uh, the creation of our own subjectivity, which is a fairly important thing in the larger philosophical context of Deleuze and Guattari, especially in Anti-Oedipus, but Jesus and all their other works. Uh, if you're listening to this on our podcast, uh, not live, that's fine, but feel free to join us live on Discord. You can find us via Twitter at D-A-N-D-G-Q-C. Uh, today's talk is going to be a bit different uh, than last week. Uh, last week was a bit more of a free-for-all. Our discussion was on the body without organs, and really, uh, the body without organs being one of the very few things in Deleuze's philosophy is, that isn't really a process, but very much a, a thing of zero intensity, a thing we can describe and talk about. Uh, the syntheses are much more about uh, the process of experience. And uh, it's about the, the three steps, basically, uh, that have been called this and that they've put together that are very foundational to the text. So because this is a discussion about process, I think it's worth us spending a moment discussing uh, the nature of uh, Deleuze and Guattari's thought, uh, the imminence of experience, the imminent idea of imminence and their critique of Kant, which is, a, I think, a pretty quick thing we might be able to get through. Um, I mean, as a simple thing, this is not a philosophical course. Uh, but then I think we go through how each of the uh, syntheses operates and uh, what they produce, uh, how they work, all of that. And I think it's going to be a little bit more of a free-for-all. Uh, as we go, please, if you have questions, uh, say so in the chat. Uh, we will absolutely allow anyone to talk. Uh, it's a free-for-all. Have fun at that point. Um, I think also then after that, I want to spend some time uh, getting into the implications of the process, what is produced, all of those things. So it's a not total structure, but a bit more structured than last time. So uh, we'll go ahead and uh, uh, dive in. Uh, First, any questions or thoughts before we, we really get going? Of course, Craig just left. We still have we still have uh, the other recording bot going. You might want to back up for that backup. Trust I, I me have, on that one. I, I have OBS uh, recording in the background right now. So uh, that'll work. And uh, we can go ahead and dive in. I think the, the first thing I want to discuss is uh, sort of why we're discussing a process and where it sits, where this process sits in sort of the sort of experience of experience, because uh, this is one of the things that took me a while to grasp, and I'm going to go ahead and uh, toss out my understanding of this, and then I'm going to let everyone tell me why I'm wrong, because that's really fun to do. Uh, so that one of the things that ended up uh, uh, mattering to me here is we're talking about the, the literal synthesis process, uh, order of a handful of things that happen prior to the individual existing. It's pre-individual experience. It's the, the literal moments of 
the desiring machine connecting, doing things, all of this happens before I exist or I'm able to make decisions about things or I'm able to pretend that I'm making decisions about things, however you want to talk about that. Uh, that this exists sort of at that innate, quick, purely imminent level. Now, would anyone like to take a crack at telling me why I'm an idiot? Jack, I see you typing. You might as well just dive in. I don't think you're an idiot, man. Um, the only thing I would say is like, be careful with the individuation there because it's, and I don't know Simone done well enough, but right. Uh, we're talking about how the subject is produced, which is going to be more, uh, so like instead of dealing with the, an ego and the id, right, we're gonna deal with desiring production and talk about how a subject is produced. Well, then let's go ahead and uh, where, where does anyone else think we should start? Because I thought this was a good place, but maybe it's not because it feels like that's a really, really, that's more of a, where we're gonna end up. When we talk about kind of the three syntheses and what they each produce, ultimately that is where they lead to is they produce subjectivity. They, they create that, 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 that essence of experience which means that we're now talking about where we're ending. So uh, I need another place to start. Hey, Brooks, what does the synthesis work upon? Uh, the, the, the synthesis, uh, what, is, what is a synthesis? <laughs> Would anyone like to take a crack on that? Let's answer Ben's question. What does the synthesis work upon? Anyone want to take a stab? Lou? Okay. Um, this is really starting poorly. So let me start out by saying Varun's actually writing an essay about uh, the Kantian influence and Deleuze and Guadri's engagement with Kant in terms of the syntheses for uh, our resident Bob Hope's uh, foundation journal. It used to be, had a different name, but now it's foundations. So there will be a more in-depth reading on this. Um, so I won't go into the Kant there. I'm just going to leave that to Varun, who has a better engagement with Kant. In terms of what's getting synthesized, the unconscious... So, so right, one of the things Deleuze will say later on um, is that anti-Oedipus, one of the main arguments, is that the unconscious is a factory, right? So things are produced by the unconscious. Uh, and it's also to understand how the unconscious is produced, right? So the three syntheses work to explain how the unconscious is produced and how this is enabled, um, it, how this is mutually enabled with something, with the socius, right? So this is to say not that the three syntheses exist without a socius any more than a socius exists without the three syntheses. We're trying to get into how the unconscious functions, um, especially in a social sense. And so in this sense, Deleuze and Guadagni are making an, an important departure from like um, from Freud here, right? In terms of like something like a personal unconscious or like a very individualized one. So as to get into the organization of productivity that is unconscious. And this is what the three syntheses effectively do, right? They are the production of, well, they are the production of production, which includes distribution and consumption had all of these things prepared and these talking points and I've completely lost myself in it. It's pretty, pretty fun. I'll help us out then. So there, if I remember correctly, Kant will discuss active syntheses 
Right, so it's things that are like actively done. What makes these three syntheses passive is in the sense that it's not as though someone's trying to do them, if if that if you follow me here. So like it's not a question of like I'm choosing to do this, it's not a conscious act in that sense, or at least that kind of conscious act. Uh, I believe these are passive because the unconscious is performing them um kind of without you telling the unconscious to do uh to do so so as as we desire and we have our libidinal energy and when we talk about desire as we talked about last week and as we've talked about through our readings desire itself is uh flows energy sexualized energy libidinal energy uh passions is another uh way you can talk about it uh, the, the production of this exists sort of uh, innate to our experience and, and sort of innate to everything's experience if you want to really get into it. But the idea is in our unconscious, we produce desire and desire is created. Now, the, the question is what is done with that? Because the flows of desire just go. As, as desire moves, it goes through these three syntheses. Uh, the, the, the twist on what they're doing and the reason it's a response to Kant, in my understanding, is that uh, Kant, while he was talking about the act of syntheses and the way that a human processes a question or chooses how they may do something, that active process, Deleuze is saying, no, actually, no, prior to that, before we've ever had that chance, prior to the subject being created, prior to individuation, there's actually a series of passive syntheses. We're not involved. We're not, you know, active uh, agent inside of our own unconscious that the way desire is produced is through these three steps. And the three steps, uh, more or less, uh, not to be uh, uh, flippant, and we'll get into all of these, is the, the, the connection, the idea that desire finds a thing to connect to. Uh, generally speaking, these are partial objects, but it, it connects and it loves connecting. Oh my God, it's the best thing ever. The second step is recording. Uh, and there's a couple parts to this, but it's the idea that uh, a, th a thing happened when it was uh, when that when that connection happened. It's the the productive, anti-productive, uh, the the separation of things. What is the thing that happened and the recognition of that moment again in the unconscious? And then the third step is uh, consumption, consummation. Uh, they, they talk about it like that, but this is the moment when. Uh, essentially uh, the energy is given this special, they, they call it almost a, a miraculous uh, sort of edge case where uh, we have at that point decided that the desire has been created and we recognize it and our subjectivity is created. That's the, the miraculating moment that they call it. Uh, these, these three steps are happening all the time with a ton of different stuff, completely passively, not in our control, but inside of our unconscious and in our, all of our connections and in the way we handle everything that we're doing from a personal to a social. And these connections happen all the time. The, the three steps of this is pre-subject though. And that's the critique they had of Kant. Uh, Kant's interesting because a lot of his work was not necessarily focused like uh, Hegel. Hegel was focused on finding out the truth and the sort of getting to the, the reality of things. But a lot of what Kant focused on is the idea of how truth uh, works, how, how we find truth, how we discover it. And he was big in the active syntheses, but Deleuze's critique says, no, it's actually, there's steps before that. And then here's how the eminence of experience actually works. Um, um, 
going in there. Um, the passive synthesis, the concept of passive synthesis is not like original to Lewis stuff, right? He takes that from Husserl, who introduces them. And there is some um, like overlap with uh, Bergson there as well, who doesn't use the term, but Husserl develops develops um, the concept of passive synthesis in another in an, in his analysis of melody, which is very similar to um, the analysis of melody by Bergson. It's it's absolutely. I mean, I, the answer is yes. It's it's absolutely from Bergson, and uh, I'm not as familiar with Husserl and pretty much everyone else you mentioned, but it's absolutely. Uh, from uh, from Bergson, and and a lot of what Bergson's work is is about talking about how uh, our our direct experience, our perception of time and reality and people and all sorts of things, uh, is is maybe not what we think. And it was playing with those, and Deleuze was deeply inspired by it. So uh, Merleau Ponte, uh, which I just started getting into uh, thanks to the, the AO reading, and it's it's pretty extraordinary. Um, so. Uh, let's take a step back and let's talk through the specific processes because I think the the three steps and let's start with uh, the question that was asked in chat, which is a great one, is literally what is being synthesized uh, because we're talking about three synthesis. Something's passing through this 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 whole thing. Uh, my answer would be desire, uh, libido, uh, the, the 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 creation energy, whatever you may want to call it. Uh, it, this sort of natural, uh, natural desire that exists within us to connect, to connect, to connect, to connect. Uh, that moment actually is the creation of desire as well as being the machine that creates it. All right, I'll read what Ben wrote in the chat. Uh, the, the reality is we're talking about the, the consistent flow of desiring production. The flow is called libido in the first synthesis where it connects desiring machines together. There's a, there's a sexual angle, a passion angle, that kind of thing. It's, uh, this, this energy then gets transferred into uh, Newman, uh, which is in the second process, which is, it's a new name, same flows, uh, which is disjunctive as the production is recorded on the surface of the BWO. Ultimately that uh, libido is then called voluptus in the third step of the synthesis, the conjunction, when the product and recording are consummated, when, it, when they uh, sort of uh, reach their zenith, I suppose would be the way to put it. And again, this is pre-individuation. Uh, the moment that the subject is created, it's the, the idea of uh, almost that meme where uh, it's the libido effectively is handing you stuff that happened and desires and choices and you're like, oh, you made this? Thank you, I made this. And it's that, that moment of switch when you're talking about, oh, I, I made this, and I'm very happy that I made this. Um, when you didn't, it's a process of the, the um, uh, three syntheses. So the, the thing that is actually produced is effectively desire itself. And how desire is produced is from this sort of natural state of wanting to connect and wanting to constantly do stuff. Uh, if you watch a two or three year old or even a baby, they're constantly reaching out for new stimuli, new things to touch, new things to taste, new things to connect with of all sorts. It's not just, you know, mother's breast for milk. 
It's not just playing with the dog's tail. It's literally everything that they can touch. It's the connections, the natural state is constant connections. The second step is the child has the thing. Uh, once it's connected, the child goes through the process of recording that. They've, they're aware that the thing happened and there's a few steps in there that we'll get into, but the, the recording into the, their BWO, their, their, their body without organs, starts happening, their, their overall experience. And then the third step is that they basically go, cool, I did that, or I want that, or I desire that. And that third step is where the subject is created. That's the, the three steps as I understand them. Really, if this is just going to be me giving a lecture, guys, this is going to be terrible. So someone asked uh, about disjunction um, and what, you know, kind of like what disjunction is or what's disjunctive about recording. Um, just on like a very basic level, like disjunction is is uh, associated with a second synthesis, and it's what happens when um, an existing desiring machine was brought together by uh, the connective synthesis is broken apart. And I think you can think of this in terms of like what Brooks was just talking about, like the infant going from sort of one object of its immediate attention to another. Um, and that being in terms of like anti-Oedipus, the breaking of one desiring machine and the entering into a connection of another de desiring machine. And then that initial connection is recorded. So is that like having transitional objects? So like you brought up the breast or something, and then a transitional object would be then to like invest that sort of affectivity into like a a toy bear or like a um, or like a blankie or something like that. Is that a disjunction? Kind of. Um, it's not in that context. So like. During the second synthesis, um, at this point, desiring machines have gone into the binary series, right? The linear series of one, two, one, two, or as they say, an organ machine, energy machine. So breast mouth, right? In that, you have the insertion of the body without organs. In this way, the desiring machines begin breaking and trying to break into the body without organs, right? Which will resist that organization. The surface of the body without organs then becomes um, kind of just two things here, right? It can repel the, um, it will repel the machines in a sense, but it will also miraculate. So in this sense, with the production of like milk, right? Um, there's a way in which production is being miraculated with the milk, right? The desiring machines have like a schizo avatar. In that sense, they're attracted to the body without organs. There's also ways in which machines are repelled and then become uh, paranoiac. Well, they have paranoiac avatars, right? So there's kind of this this movement here, which is how the body without organs is falling back on production. In this way, it's it's using point signs, which is how you get like they don't say the body without organs has a grid. They say it's like a grid in the sense that there's coordinates and all that. But it's not a clear square because it's sort of amoebic or right the body that organs has this fluidity about it because it's formless right it doesn't it's not a, a clear shape so in this way disjunctions are are how these organs start to function in certain ways 
how they get recorded in that sense too is that with this functionality and with this process of um, uh, like code or uh, signification. I would also add that uh, at this point, we're not talking about whole objects. One of their one of their larger critiques about how desire works is not necessarily that I want uh, Kix serial. That's not really how desire works. This is the way we've shaped desire due to the three syntheses. The way desire works and desiring machines work is they only work as and on partial objects. This is pre-creation of any sort of large-scale symbolism or signs. It's the the uh, sort of innate. Uh, quick look, uh, a, a mouth desires a breast. It's not desiring the breast as we know it as a symbolic thing. It's literally just the material connection of the two that it desires. So we're talking about partial objects. As things get recorded and they get fucked up by production and anti-production and all sorts of other things, they start becoming attached to larger objects and this sort of uh, three syntheses uh, become uh, uh, broken into things, uh, whole persons, global figures, uh, anti-Oedipus itself, mommy, daddy, me, all of those things. The, the, the ability for us to sort of force things into whole objects and pretend that's where desire comes from is, is part of this larger critique and idea. Did you have uh, something to say, Corridor? Uh, and this, this is part of uh, the, the opening of the book uh, starts in 1.1 where they talk about, uh, I believe it's um, Malloy, uh, on a walk and a schizo on a walk, uh, um, and a schizo on a walk uh, where they say out uh, the line, uh, are a bicycle horn and my mother's art, my mother's ass sufficient to do the job. The, the, the partial objects that the desiring machines are after the way that they connect is not through some greater symbology. It's not that, uh, like Freud would say, for example, that I desire, uh, this woman who's a maid as an example because uh, I once saw my mother wear that outfit and it's transferred. It's like, no, no, you, you desire X, Y, and Z, and there's a million little desiring machines going. We've complexly ruined desire by sort of telling it what it needs to be after the fact and presupposed that. And that's the third step of the process that sort of creates that. So it's a, it's a, the, the way desire is produced, again, starts with partial objects, which is a really important part to the entire thing. Well, we want to be very careful here because desiring production. So it's not a chicken or the egg question for Deleuze and Guadri. It's not a question of which comes first. It's a question of mutual contingency. So like I said earlier, the three syntheses and the socius are mutually relying upon each other. So we would say with the chicken and the egg, right? You need kind of need both, right? They're mutually contingent, right? How do you get an egg? Well, you know where I'm going with this. So in the same way, desiring production and these libidinal flows, this is mutually reliant on um, the three syntheses, right? This all fits together so that it's um, it's sort of mutually dependent as opposed to like what comes first. So to, so to Brooks's point, desiring production is flowing and the first synthesis is doing these connections, right? It's animating the partial objects and making these connections happen so that you get the linear binary series of energy machine, organ machine. Yeah, so, so uh, to Misha's question, understanding where in the scope of all these things, all this takes place, uh, if you've ever said, oh, I want a thing, or if you've ever thought or had an emotion that you desire a thing, 
you're already on the other side of the three syntheses. Uh, there's this pre-individual, pre-experience. This is like very imminent to the existence and the way that it works. We'll come back to that. Um, but it's uh, it's the it's the moment that uh, my desiring machines, my mouth connects to the glass to drink my lime water. Like I'm, I'm drinking lime sparkling water. Like my mouth, I, I'm not drinking that. I'm that's not the desiring machine thinking through that. But it's lips connect to that. Tongue connects to soda. Soda goes like it's all these different things. It's it's unconscious. It is innate to sort of the core base experience. It's primary to everything. Uh, it's it's pre I pre anything. It's it's destroy any semblance of subjectivity, and maybe we start going in the right direction. Uh, and it's that that first step. It's the 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 production of desire comes from, uh, again, sort of produces itself. Uh, the the idea that uh, new things produce desire, the connections to new things, that the the production of these connections is the first desiring machine, that connective synthesis. So if that's the first one, uh, the the second step uh, to the entire thing, uh, the the second uh, synthesis, is when we start talking about the recording of them. Now we talked a lot about the BWO in our last session, and to give a very quick overview of uh, the BWO. Now, when I say very quick, I do not want this to be another two hours on the BWO. But it's essentially, uh, if we think about uh, these things as actual machines, the second step uh, essentially kicks off, not produces the BWO directly, but the BWO is produced incidentally of the second step. As these things get recorded, as this experience happens, uh, we make a notch and we say, this happened, this did this thing, this experience did this, uh, I ate steak, very simple, boom. Lips ate steak, uh, lips drank wine, these things like that, all those partial objects. All of those are being recorded all the time. And think of it as an incredibly complex uh, recording process as it gets etched onto the bardo without organs, which is the grand recording instrument. The second step during that process uh, by recording it essentially starts creating this idea of what we believe reality to be constituted of. The recordings basically begin constituting uh, what we consider to be the sort of edge limits. Is that a fair way to put it, Jack and everyone? Of what things are, what the world is like, all of those things, sort of through the nature of recording. That's the second step. Um, generally speaking, also, this is disjunction, which is when things uh, start breaking apart when we when we separate things we start putting things into very specific categories and starts it's not so much anymore the yes i want to connect and 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 but instead uh it's connected to the either or either or connections get recorded and then uh, uh they get remade uh based on a sort of production or anti-production which is a sub-step of the disjunction I think an important distinction is with this junction is that it's they make this in the book a couple of times. It's not either or as an exclusive, but it's either or 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 inclusive. Uh, on my version, the penguin version on page 76 uh, in the section on the second synthesis, they have this quote. Uh, it reveals to us an unknown force of the disjunctive synthesis, an imminent use that would no longer be exclusive or restrictive, but fully affirmative, non-restrictive, inclusive. 
a disjunction that remains disjunctive and that still affirms the disjoint terms that affirms them throughout their entire distance without restricting one by the other or excluding the other from the one is perhaps the greatest paradox. Uh, either or or instead of either slash or. So like to me, the way I read that is important that I just disconnect. No, no, you're still here. I'm I'm thinking through, sorry. Sorry. So for me, like the importance of that is basically like everything is going to be defined in terms of the entire disjunction. Like it's not just the coordinates themselves, but the coordinates are going to be defined in their relation to their disjunction of other coordinates. So like everything is inclusive of everything else, even if you choose something. I mean, kind of you, this is going to be really hard and we, it's always a struggle to get away from us. It's not like you're choosing things, right? The body without organs and the point signs are enabling functionality of the desired machines. So with these connections and during the second synthesis in the process of recording, right? You have this surface for the body without organs to um, repel and miraculate the desiring machines with. And in this sense, you have, yeah, I'll get to the point signs generally shortly. And in this sense, you have uh, the body without organs enabling the functionality. So you have the desiring machines in terms of attraction of the body without organs or miraculation. And you have uh, paranoiac machines, which are desire machines being repelled by the body without organs. This is important to understand too, because this is still this is still codependence. They give the example of Judge Schraber, where Judge Schraber is having his organs miraculated, right? So there's uh, miraculating machines. However, there's a simultaneity of a paranoiac machine, which is going to be, in their example, God trying to stop the miraculation process. So you've got this this interplay of forces here, right? Um, between attraction or between traction and repulsion. With the point signs, the body without organs, and I'll give a quote shortly, upon the recording surface, there are point signs which enable the functionalities, right? Where the desiring machine is on that surface is going to be in relation to this point sign which provides the disjunction, which is kind of, a, to put it a little bit simply, it's in this way, the body without organs is kind of telling, um, telling the, the, the desire machine what to do, right? To repel or to attract it. And so the functionality is enabled here, which is why you wouldn't have that kind of Freudian transference where you go from this oral fixation to that oral fixation, right? It's, it's not so much that kind of fixation um, in that normal sense. It's, a, it's the, the changes of the, of the connective synthesis. And in that way, the body without organs is changing with production there. So one of the uh, bits I was reading, one of my favorites uh, is a anarchist without content uh, piece that I think Lou originally linked me to if I want to go really far back in time, um, uh, where the, the author basically uh, separates the second process and thinks of it, and I don't want to say as a fork in the road because that's the wrong way to think of it, but it's, it's, I'm trying to speak allegorically and simple, that 
essentially the 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 way that the second works and the recording works is it's either productive or anti-productive productive on the one side that there's satisfaction in the production of a thing the connection did a thing it did a thing cool yay excellent we record it uh the the child gets satisfaction after suckling on the breast the connection succeeded effectively uh then the other step is also is uh, anti-production where it's uh this didn't work next thing or the the general denial of uh connections uh, which is as we discussed part of the role of the bwo is that the it repels desiring machines the desiring machines want to connect to the things that like directly on it but it can't and so the the anti-production sort of stems from that so uh the the sort of that's how i i've been reading it is that far off from other people's so with anti-production right the body without organs is it belongs to the realm of anti-production uh but the the body without organs is itself a non-productive so it links product the it, it links desiring production with anti-production and this way it allows for the, the counterplay of forces there, right? The productive and the anti-productive. And in this sense, production, it's not simply that it can, it's not just that it can end, it's that production can change in this sense too, that breaks and reconnections become possible. So it'd be fair to say then that uh, it, the, the nature of the BWO, the nature of anti-production is not we should not be thinking about things in terms of good or bad or uh, things that harm us or do any of those things. There's just a nature to the way that these things are recorded. And anti-production breaks us from, uh, I think the term is instinctual determinism that they use. Uh, basically, the, the connection that's there, the BWO sort of allows that connection to slip and to find uh, another thing, to go, go off and, and connect to something new. Uh, the challenge here is that as that connection is broken, anti-production can do that quite a bit. And actually, it can do it far too much. And it becomes a thing where you end up getting a neurosis for self-denial. Or uh, I think ultimately they talk about this is uh, what they believe is sort of a cause of catatonia or effectively catatonia. So it's the, the moment when we decide, yes, this is working or no, this is not next thing, uh, kind of. But again, not decide. Please don't take anything I'm saying as being uh, post-subject. It's the fun part about this. But it's that, that innate feeling of, yes, this is satisfying. No, this isn't. That happens as you're doing the thing, as the, as the partial object is connecting to the partial object. Yeah, and so now we're moving into the third synthesis. But what you said about good and evil is spot on. So the schizophrenic and the paranoiac here, as you can see, like the body without organs uses both. So this is not a new good and evil. Um, and this is important because that repulsion and attraction, that counterplay, or rather that interplay of forces is what allows for the intensities that are going to be um, consumed and therefore consummate, which is how we get subjectivity. Uh, the, so this is not to say that there, there's no ethics here. Something like a neurotic or a psychotic I think we can say that's produced through the paralogistic uses of the syntheses, right? That's produced through a, a misunderstanding of the unconscious, if we want to put it simply. And in that sense, there is an ethics they're building up, I think, as Foucault points out in the preface. It's just not going to be an ethics of the schizophrenic good, the paranoiac bad. 
it's it's not that kind of good and evil dynamic. Yeah, and and uh, um, anti-production is basically what allows production to be renewed and continue to find new connections. So there is, like, there is a, a reality. It produces production, which is kind of funny to think about. Uh, but this this step gives that sort of uh, that reification, that that repeatability of finding new connections and all of that. Now, the reason that it ends up causing difference in the or, or, or is because the first step will connect to as much as it can. Uh, it, it doesn't have the ability to the first step, the connective synthesis of desire does not have the ability to not connect two things. Uh, simple version of it, but if you've ever, I'm a marketer's dream. I'll give you my personal experience of life. Uh, if I'm in a candy bar, place and there are a thousand candy bars and 50 of them say new literally that's where my eyes go because that's like oh fuck that's new new video games on steam new shit on twitter new shit on facebook the the new the finding new connections is sort of inherent to the way that desire works now we naturally can't connect to all of those and in fact we have to differentiate otherwise we'd be connected to everything and it's just impossible so that second step is what enables us to sort of parse the world and separate things and work within things so it's a it's 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 that step that we're talking about here where it's like oh i'm i've separated i'm this this connection's great this connection i don't know what the fuck that was next one and as you do that you begin creating separations and anxiety because you can connect to either or 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 it's sort of innate to the second step of what is a wholly passive process of recording. Yeah. And so in this point, right, we're getting into the inscriptive process. So with, with the either or, or I brought to saying there, there's, this does not disable difference. This is actually really critical here, right? Because difference is, is part of this multifunctionality. It's part of the multiplicity, right? The different partial objects, even if it is a linear series of energy and um, of these two organs, I forgot the other term, sorry. But um, in that sense, the difference is really important because what they can do, what they can function as, right, that relies on the difference of functionality. So like the, they, they talk about the mouth being capable of consuming food, but it can also regurgitate food, right? There's a, a potentiality to the mouth machine that it can do different things. The functions are different, or rather, there are differential functions, just as there are differential relations between the partial objects. Yes, and if you think about any one of these, uh, if we want to talk about whole objects, they're a series of desiring machines, a series of little tiny machines that are constantly going. An infant drinking from the mother's breast is not simply a mouth connected to a breast. It's the lungs suckling, it's the, the lungs pulling in, the mother holding the child, the mother holding the child in a specific way, the mother dealing with the pain, wanting to breastfeed. Like there's all of these tiny little moments that are con connecting with the child, all of these little partial objects that make up what, I'm, what you might call the, the experience, the, the event, the full thing. And as those are happening at any point, all of those can be broken, any one of those. So it's a, there's, a, there's a layer of extreme complexity that we're talking about ultimately here. And uh, that's ultimately where the third synthesis comes in because all of these things start coming together. And as these recordings happen, as these desiring machines are finding connections, they're happening a lot and they're breaking and they're finding and connecting a lot, all the time, every, every few moments. Uh, 
imminently, constantly. Now, because of this, there is a, as they refer to it, a constellation created of recordings, uh, grids on the body without organs. It, uh, this, uh, this intense experience, these states, this is where you emerge, the subjectivity of experience. It's the after effect, after affect of the interplay of these, the connection and the, the disjunction uh, on the BWO. This is where you start to exist. So in that, in that, that last step, there's a few sort of side parts, but that's the, the big thing we're talking about is basically you come out of the other side, uh, consumption, you, you emerge, you consume, uh, and enjoyment and suffering are consumption. There is no, this isn't desiring machines being satisfied in the sense of like orgasms. This is, there is stuff on the other side. There is consumption, which results in the affectivity of subjectivity. And that is produced from the interplay between all of these things. And there's a lot of it happening all the time. Yeah. Um, I found the third synthesis really mysterious for a long time. Um, actually, this uh, Protevi piece that Ken shared recently, um, I thought was really helpful in understanding it um, because Protevi says that the word used to describe the connection between desiring machines in French is um, investissement, which is the same as investment. Um, and in like the financial sense, there's a surplus value that is created when one, you know, when two um, desiring machine or, or partial objects are invested by the first synthesis. And it is this excess of desire that is that's what's um, produced in the connection and what is consumed in the uh, third synthesis. And it's in the consumption of that um, excess sort of value of desire, the interest on the investment that the subject appears and then mistakes itself for the cause of the process of which it is the result. And then in this is that, 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 the the egotistic moment if you if you want to lay on that where it's the the ability to retroactively and again this is the miraculating energy that they talk about uh where you go oh i did that that's me uh the the, the idea that there's some central specific a priori cause of your own creation or your own agency that made a thing or did a thing or enjoyed a thing um and this, this function, these three steps, uh, yes, uh, geos, it's a, absolutely the same thing when we talk about uh, people talking about how money makes money, that phrase, which is a thing people say uh, is part of that, where out the other side, when the, the three steps are miraculated uh, and the, the body without organs, the socius is recorded and everyone goes, oh, well, capital did that, the market did that, whatever you, phrase you want to use, uh, it, it miraculates its own creation. It, it is becomes responsible for itself, which is insane and absurd in a lot of different ways. But this is how this happens. Because as your desire is utilized, blocked and done, and it's done in ways that are incredibly complicated, it's all of this happens in a way that is imperceptibly difficult to understand in your own existence. This is not a map for you to go break down and understand and be able to see all the desiring machines in your life. Instead, this is about understanding that there's a hyper complexity that causes subjectivity to be created on the other side. And that subjectivity that's created on the other side, you have the, the chance to go, 
Oh yes, no, this is this is me. Excellent. Uh, I I Brooks, my body without organs that is Brooks. The shape of my existence is is my doing. I did this. So let's go into this a little bit further then, because what you guys are talking about is is, is uh, very critical here, right? With this production of subjectivity in the third synthesis. So someone asked a question about the ego. Uh, I, I mentioned earlier that we're talking about the subject and not the ego here. I also mentioned that they don't have an ego in the same sense that Freud does. So I, to explain this, during the third synthesis, the, the point signs in that, right, functionality has been distributed, libidinal energy, and the, the process of production has changed, or we talked about the folds last week. With this um, interplay of the of the miraculating and the, uh, rep, rep, uh, let me try that again, with this interplay of the attracting and repulsive forces during the first and second syntheses, an intensity is created all upon the body, surface of the body without organs. This is happening. The intensities are created from the uh, point of the body without organs at zero intensity. With these intensities, that is uh, how a subject appears. Now, as I understand Deleuze and Guadri, what they're getting at here is, so right, the subject is produced here. So subjectivity is taking place from this product process of production. Uh, Brooks is spot on that the, the, the paralogistic use here, the improper thing, is the right? So they say um, there is the difference between. So that's what it was: the syllogistic use and the paralogistic use of. So it's me. So you don't want to confuse. Um, uh, you don't want to confuse the subjectivity with yourself having been the subjectivity. Right? You, you follow me here? There's not that static, um, that kind of ego with the staticity because you're constantly being produced. In this sense, um, where they do, I think, have an ego is, 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 so this can be a little complicated, but with the production of subjectivity, there's something like an ego going around on the body of that organs, right? Going through these different intensities. This is not a personal ego, right? This is a way in which, how does the breast want milk? There's a subjectivity of hunger um, I said the breast and I, how does the mouth want milk? There's a subjectivity of hunger there that the partial object is experiencing in relation to the breast. You, you follow me here? There's not a static ego of the person who's hungry, which is um, responding to the id's desire for food and trying to figure out how to release the tension all under the regulation of a superego. Instead, we have two partial objects, the breast and the, the mouth, experiencing a subjectivity of hunger, right? And there's a few more intensities we can talk about there, but that's a, the basic aspect of it. So with the final step, uh, this is kind of where they start getting into a little bit more of the psychoanalytic cases of uh, what happens uh, other direction. and. We're, we'll get into uh, where the paranoia and the schizo really fall into this, the process-wise. But I do want to talk about their sort of side cases when they talk about in this in this final step in the consummation. Uh, if anti-production ends up uh, taking over, desiring production, 
gets denied its connections and begins fixating on ungratifying substitutes. Uh, that's the neurotic. They, instead of, because they can't connect to the thing that's actually able to satisfy them and their body without organs has recorded many, many things that may or may not have satisfied, they begin fixating on things that don't satisfy them. Conversely, uh, if production ends up prevailing and anti because like, you want a balance of these things pretty well in your life. Uh, if you end up connecting or over-connecting, uh, you end up having uh, unorthodox organ connections uh, and due to or perhaps in spite of uh, the social san sanctions against it. There's a, there's a perversion where you enjoy the things you're not supposed to do because you and they're the things you're not supposed to do. It's the the ability for you to be overcoming anti-production all the time leads to a generalized perversion. Uh, the, again, these are things that happen sort of at the pre-subject level, and this is the moment when you go through that process. So to state again, and we can ask, then we'll open up for questions on these, and then we'll dive into how this really matters, especially in capital. Uh, the the three syntheses are basically the moment of uh, connection being made and production essentially is created. Uh, desire is created through that moment. The second step is either that connection satisfies, which is cool, that shit gets recorded on the BWO, or a break is made and uh, you're able to go off and connect to something else, hopefully find some satisfaction there. Uh, this is happening all the time. The final step in any of these is that uh, it's not so much uh, the third step in literally the line of the desiring machines, but it's the next step in all of these is that the collection, the constellation of all of these little connections and disjunctions are the moment where you get to come out of it and go, excellent, that is what I wanted. I did want uh, this. I did want to buy a whatchamacallit candy bar because that is the candy bar for Brooks. Uh, that's me. And th these are the moments that uh, that all of the desire is consummated, the after effect becomes you, and uh, you get to have this subjectivity and experience. Those are the three syntheses. I open it up for questions from anyone. We wanna be careful there though, because it's not simply, um, so their understanding of pleasure is a little, it's not Epicurean, right? So they, they qualify it as like, voluptus can be the sense of pleasure, but it can also be suffering. Right, uh, because they talk about Schreber being kind of tortured by God, so there's a the subjectivity here is not always uh, pleasant. No, that was uh, an earlier my point, and it's it's why I hesitate to use the word pleasure. Uh, and I know that they've used that, and that's what's been in their translations. I I prefer to use satisfaction because it it implies less a direct positive connotation or leaning towards direct sexual satisfaction, instead. Uh, that that westernized has basically come to mean orgasm, whereas sexual satisfaction and the sort of consummation or the, the satisfaction of desire can mean a, a, a lot of different sort of uh, affect emotions. So when we talk about satisfaction, it's the the thing happened and it closed it out. And that can be through all sorts of manner of things, uh, suffering all the way to pleasure. Is it too early to start asking about how this stuff would be implemented into an ethics? Because that's <laughs> kind of yeah. Okay, never mind. There, I think we will get there. I want to. I want to see if there's any more questions about the literal process itself, because uh, the, again, the, the tough part here is uh, a lot of uh, philosophers that came before. I, I'm just going to 
throw out Hegel, although I'm not super experienced directly reading it. Uh, a lot of Hegel's uh, ethics uh, Im implies a spirit, a sort of a priori existence of what truth is and a priori existence of what things are that is the thing, that is the good or is the you. Whereas there is an implication in Deleuze and Guattari's work that life is a process and that becoming is the, is the essence. So it's a very different tactic than just saying, oh, well, let's explain what the spirit is and point at it. We're now discussing a process. And the process is a thing that is, this is how subjectivity is created. This is how you come into being. Anything you've ever said is you or felt that it is you emotionally or had someone else even called you, this is how it exists. This is how you come to exist. So probably you should be asking questions. Already, are we already at the place where we can talk about uh, Kant categories, or is it for another day? No, no, let's dive in. So, as I'm understanding it, um, they use these three synthesis as sort of a pre prerequisite as well um, for um, any type of interaction uh, with, let's say, anything. <laughs> um, and I, I was just wondering how it re how it exactly relates and how specifically it differs from Kant's categories that also pose them itself as something a priori, uh, the first thing that information goes through or interaction goes through before it becomes anything. So how is it different? So so we have to kind of dive back into Deleuze's uh, criticisms of Kant, which I highly recommend uh, reading through. He, he he's, does it a lot in Difference and Repetition, which I think is, I mean, he, he does it a lot in a few other places too, but uh, difference in repetition, he really does some work on this. Um, and also in Bergsonism, because Bergson kind of was inspirational in this direction. Um, his uh, criti critique of Kant to, uh, I'm just going to read directly from uh, Stanford, uh, claims that he, uh, Kant, had simply presumed the existence of knowledge and morality as facts and then sought their conditions of possibility in the transcendental. But already in the 1789, Salomon Mimon, whose early critiques of Kant helped generate post-Kantian tradition, had argued Kant's critical project required a method of genesis, and not merely a method of conditioning, that would account for the production of knowledge, morality, and indeed reason itself. In other words, Mamon called for a genetic method that would be able to reach the conditions of real and not merely possible experience. Um, for, for instance, uh, in Nietzschean philosophy, Deleuze suggests that Nietzsche completed and inverted Kantianism by bringing critique to bear, not simply on false claims to knowledge and morality, but on true knowledge and true morality, and indeed on truth itself. Genealogy constituted Nietzsche's genetic method, and the will to power was his principle of difference. Deleuze's anti-Hegelianism is shown in his focus on productivity, blah, blah, blah. Um, basically, the argument he was coming at is that uh, Kant's sort of post-subjectivity uh, uh, setup and beliefs in the way that he was sort of charging through uh, was basically about the, oh, this is the truth. Now, here how's how we figure out the possibilities within it. And Deleuze is saying, well, if we go a handful of steps earlier, pre-subject, pre-any of that, here is the genealogy for how we come to understand what knowledge and morality are in and of themselves. And it comes from these very tiny things called desiring machines. But but aren't the 12 categories of, of, um, of uh, perceiving also before morality and, and subject? Well, 
So let's back up a little bit here too. So keep in mind too, Khan's got active syntheses, and I believe he's working with, I think, the consciousness here, whereas Deleuze and Guadri are working passive with passive syntheses of the unconscious. Well, so I, I want to jump in because that uh, specifically, the line is, and this is where this gets really fun, and I'm not super versed in Kant, so I apologize, but uh, Kant believed in a transcendental subject. And this is the the idea that there is uh, this external uh, observer. I don't know how to put it. Uh, the identity is transcendent. It's, it's external, you're outside of the system, and uh, synthesis happens effectively almost around you. Uh, whereas Deleuze is saying, no, it's not transcendent. In fact, it's extremely material, and here is the production of it, and we need to take a, it's imminent. Uh, and here is how the production works. And that's sort of the separation if you want to uh, make it simple. And I'm probably going to piss someone off with how I just said that. So where I think Brutz and the Stanford Encyclopedia are, are correct is that Deleuze and Guadri want to talk about the like how things happen, right? So how do you even, you know, how would something like reason get there? How would these categories come to be? Uh, more directly, how does a subject happen, right? Where does subjectivity come from? For Deleuze and Guadri, it's produced and it's an unconscious production of subjectivity, as we've just discussed through the three syntheses. So I, I don't have the background in Kant to go too much further than that. I will say this. It's important to understand that their critical engagement with Kant does not take them out of like a Kantian influence or Kantian. Um, there is some methodological inspiration. I think Deleuze says later on that Anti-Oedipus is a, a book with a Kantian method and A Thousand Plateaus is like a Neo-Kantian method. Well, he, um, he, Neo-Kantian would be the way I think Deleuze would even want to phrase himself because uh, when he wrote, uh, and again, I, I'm not a Kantian ex expert, but I remember in uh, uh, Kant's uh, critical philosophy, Deleuze basically said, hey, Kant was right. He just didn't go all the way. Like it's this idea of we can critique reason based on imminent experience. And he's like, cool. So what makes an imminent experience? Because Kant didn't kind of go to that next step where he starts really talking about all of these things being imminent. Kant still had these transcendental subject inside of it. And Deleuze just went, hey, I'm just taking that and really blowing it out. Uh, again, I'm going to piss someone off with how I've said that. Yeah, to me, I think what also maybe confuses me about it a little bit is because I actually always had a really difficult time understanding Kant's ethics based on his metaphysics. And um, I always was like, how, how, how the frick could you get to your ethics if you describe your metaphysics as being so technical in a way? Um, and I actually think that the 12 categories of Kant to me still seems very similar to the to the working of the of the three synthesis that you just described although that the definition of Kant 12 categories are just a bit uh, presumptuous well and, and I would also say that and, and again uh, not an expert uh, Kant's uh, category categories are uh, in serial uh, one happens then another and they're they're singular they're separated they're they're individual things uh, when we talk about the three syntheses they happen effectively simultaneously 
it's it's not the same thing we can talk about where it's like these are singular things there's no breaking this apart there's no saying cool well uh, i'm gonna work on my second synthesis like it's like no this is the three syntheses are essentially the production of subjectivity and there's no breaking them apart. This is the setup. There is an, there's a direct eminence to the way that they exist. So I can't take us too much. I can't take us into the 12 categories, but I can give you this quote from page 75, which will at least give you some of the relationship between Kant, um, Andalus and Guadir and what they're doing in anti-Oedipus. So on page 75, uh, and this is in reference to having just discussed the, the paralogistic use of, I believe, the first synthesis. Deleuze and Guattari write, and, and this is in reference to Kant, in what he termed the critical revolution, Kant intended to discover criteria imminent to understanding so as to distinguish the legitimate and the illegitimate uses of the syntheses of consciousness in the name of transcendental philosophy, imminence of criteria. He therefore denounced the transcendent use of syntheses, such as appeared in metaphysics. In like fashion, we, so Deleuze and Guadri, are compelled to say that psychoanalysis has its metaphysics. Its name is Oedipus, and that a revolution, this time materialist, can only proceed by way of a critique of Oedipus by denouncing the illegitimate use of the syntheses of the unconscious as found in Oedipal psychoanalysis, so as to rediscover a transcendental unconscious defined by the imminence of its criteria and a corresponding practice that we shall call schizoanalysis. Page 75 is where that's from. It's just that I think the, the thing that I want to understand, that I want to understand the most, and that's why I keep coming back to Kant, because I know Kant better than Deleuze, is if they see it as some sort of way to um, also organize things as they are versus how things are perceived. Um, uh, because I know that's a bit of a less contemporary issue in philosophy than it used to be. But would you say that this is also a system to categorize things, not necessarily to be specific things, but rather to categorize things to even be able to be perceived? I would say this is the generation of things, the production of things. So I would say kind of. They're, I don't think Deleuze and Guadri are trying to get into categories because they're, I think they're very hesitant to do something like cause and effect, where cause and effect is this clear this than that. Um, because even with like the three syntheses, right, there's a, to use the Borges term, they're simultaneous and successive. So the first and second syntheses overlap just as they do with the third synthesis. So their understanding of cause and effect, I think, is probably going to differ with Kant just to start drawing where we can see distinctions here. Um, even with their ethics, you know, where they're going to get into this, especially with their criticism of psychoanalysis, or more so with the metaphysics that psychoanalysis is using, is, is very much that, right? The, the metaphysics of psychoanalysis is using the three syntheses improperly, right? There's a paralogistic use of those syntheses. And that's where a lot of this criticism in anti-Oedipus is going to happen. Well, I, I would argue that uh, in my understanding and my reading of this, that 
uh, this the the three syntheses are effectively how we do separate things and we do create categories. This is not about uh, them determining here's what categories should be or how they should be set up at all. It's about them discussing this is the process of subjectivity. During the process of subjectivity, we naturally divide things up. We have to, as desiring machines get broken and we connect to one thing over another, some things satisfy, other things don't, and we learn to categorize things sort of at an imminent level. As this is created and this sort of grand interplay is happening uh, out the other side, I am shit as a human being and I am Brooks and I get to pretend that I came up with all of that and it's my choices and my decisions. The, the reality is those desiring machines aren't even my own. Uh, the desiring machines are not mine. The desiring machines are all of the desiring machines. It's sort of this massive meta continual flow level throughout all of society. The, there's no such thing as an individual who thinks. There's no such thing as an individual who creates. Uh, there is no such thing as an individual who desires. There are only partial objects trying to connect to partial objects. Out the other side, I am spit as a subject, and I get to pretend that I am the individual that did all of these things through the miraculating energy that is given off during this process. Uh, but that's hardly the case. So the difficulty we start talking about is, during this process, we're naturally subdividing the world. We have to. Uh, we, if, if all we had, if we could connect to everything at the same time, uh, that's not existence. That's not even... Like there, there are sci-fi movies about this. Uh, this is Akira. That's Akira. The problem with that, and it's uh, there's critiques of this. There's great art written about this sort of concept. So the uh, what we're talking about is not necessarily, and this is why I want to get back to Misha's question. This is not them saying here is how we ought to organize. It's not what they're saying. In fact, it's the opposite. It's them saying. This is the natural process of how perception and creation of subjectivity works. We need to understand that because what happens is during this process, especially something like anti-Oedipus or other repression mechanisms such as hierarchies, capitalism, despotism, all sorts of things, uh, they create anti-production in some really fucked up ways and they actually uh, start forcing us in that process to pretend like those problems were always there. Uh, Anti-Oedipus, Oedipus as an example, comes in and says, uh, uh, well, yes, of course you're having issues with your father. Uh, yes, of course you are. Uh, you wanted to fuck your mother, this is why. And they beat it into your head until you basically get Oedipalized. Once you're Oedipalized, you've decided, oh, my problems with my father are stemming from the fact that when I was a child, I couldn't help but want to fuck my mom. And that's a problem, because that basically teaches you and presupposes at the beginning of this that your desire comes from some place and you've now put your subjectivity sort of back in and created a lot of anti-production in the process of your own creation. It fucks you up as you go. So this sort of reality of how we understand the world, anti-production doesn't come from nowhere. Production doesn't come from nowhere. Desiring machines produce. And in that line of all the desiring machines, at some point we insert capital. At some point capital tells us that, oh, you need these things. We have axioms that teach us how the world works. And you start integrating those things into the BWO. And as you do that, the grid and the way that things get denied, the way that things get satisfied shift. And that's the problem because we basically are infecting ourselves with this sort of uh, awful uh, pre-creation, pre-subjective uh, 
shit that is ruining our own subjectivity and our own freedom. That makes a lot of sense to me. I have, I have another question about the, the third synthesis. And that is that um, uh, I, I forgot what word you used, but you described it as being some sort of pleasure, but it was not pleasure. What, what word did you use? Satisfaction. A, a pleasure. So, and again, this is, a, this is a translation and language thing, wherever you're at in the world. Uh, there, to me, I, I go with the American sort of colloquialisms and the way that it's talked about. Pleasure has a naturally almost positive and very specific connotation that tends to be like, good but we're not talking about that like we're talking about just generally satisfied and uh, satisfaction comes in a lot of different forms and so i was wondering how so satisfaction how do they defend or determine um uh, when something is satisfied because in my head you do need some sort of let's say judgment for that that's the that's the fun part is uh well go ahead i heard i think i heard jack okay that's a that's actually a very good question it's a super good question so it's important to understand what's happening there with the celibate machine because this is the thing it's not going to be i think i see where you're going you're, it sounds like you're going into kantian ought right in the use hey. of judgment there yeah did i get that <laughs> oh boy i get a peanut butter cookie um so this is a really good question. So during the third synthesis, the celibate machine is in... Um, okay, I'm going to have to get some quotes here. So we'll, I'll back this up in a moment. The, the residual energy from the second synthesis moves into voluptus, right? And this energy is now going to be consummated and consumed by the subject. So the subject is going to be um, I don't want to say imbibed here, but that's kind of how it is, right? The subject is going to be affected by this um, celibate machine. And the, the example they give here, at least the one that made sense to me, is Kafka's in the penal colony. So there's the machine that inscribes upon the body of the, uh, I guess, the convicted. The body of the convicted, uh, they're... Basically, it's a social code, right? So something like be just, right? Something that uh, the person is being convicted of. And so this inscription is made upon them until they finally reach a state of ecstasy. Um, and this is important because even though we're talking about like, it's not quite a pleasure in the normal, like it's not like an Epicurean thing, I guess, but it kind of, I guess there's kind of interplay. There's a point in which it's not just about the pleasure, it's also about the pain, right? There's the suffering that something like that celibate machine does to those people, which still results in a form of ecstasy. So what's happening here is the intensities uh, of voluptus are being uh, consumed and at the same time consummating the subject. So the desiring machines in their subjectivities, right? In this circularity, uh, these intensities have not only been distributed, but they're consummating the desiring machine. So like I said earlier, the breast and the, the breast and the mouth uh, machines are, in, are taking part in the subjectivity of hunger and also like the ability, I don't know what you call it when a breast, I guess lactating, and the subjectivity of lactating, right? There's a mutual experience there between just those two. The 
is produced by the intensity, right? It is that intensity that's consummating them as such. An example of the celibate machine would be the, I mean, they're getting it from, um, I can't think of his name, it starts with a D, but an example would be Kafka's machine in the, the penal colony. I, 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 I want to I jump back because I think I have a simpler explanation for Misha because the, the question, and it's, and it's one of the things that makes a lot of uh, DNG tough to discuss because we come into it with a lot of language and cliches that have implications that we don't know. But I would say that, again, when we talk about satisfaction, there's almost a positive there. Let me, let me try again. I'm going to pull back. Fuck the word satisfaction. Uh, the, the machine is uh, recorded. The machine is satisfied when something is produced. That's it. When something is produced. Uh, and I, and there's simple examples they give in the book that I really like. Uh, and if you've ever done these things, there's simple examples that it's not about pleasure or pain. It's not about some extreme side either way. It's just about producing a thing, almost an affect. Don't want to say an affect, but almost that. Uh, when uh, you are plugging a lamp into a wall, that, that that's satisfied. That's a satisfied moment. That's a satisfying moment. Now, it's not good. It's not like I get, maybe some people get aroused by it. I've been on the internet long enough. I'm sure someone does, but like, I'm not talking about them. The moment of doing a thing, these partial objects together produce a thing, done. That's it. That's the, that's the moment of satisfaction. Uh, clean up my fucking floor. I clean my room, Jordan Peterson. Like you do a thing, uh, I move a pencil, I, I tap my phone. These, these little moments that have the singular connections, a thing is produced, a thing, that is the moment of satisfaction. A thing is produced. Production begets production is kind of the idea here. Uh, production produces production and it kind of is this ever, you know, increasing sort of setup. So that's the way I would say it. So to understand it um, right, um, I feel like it, is it correct to say that it's necessary to have a constant switch between the second and the third synthesis, because how else can you say that an action is finished? So this is where, uh, so an action is, uh, again, utilizing the word action uh, presupposes, and a lot of the descriptions we have are poor describers. It's why they use very specific language as uh, 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 lips, breast, uh, you know, anus shit. The very specific language they're using is because we're talking about a lot of partial objects and their connections. Uh, a partial object reaches out, it wants to connect tons of times, let's say millions of times a second. There's this constant thing happening. And all the time, a lot of those connections are refused, don't work out, don't really do much. A lot of those do work, they produce a thing. All of those are happening. Now, the third step is not necessarily that uh, the, uh, oh, we wait, it's every time there's a singular, uh, per, you know, connection, there's a disjunction, and then immediately subjectivity creates. If there's only one desiring machine, that's not really how this works. We're talking about shit tons of these things happening all the time, happening imminent to each other in a very specific row. Out the other side is almost, uh, the subjectivity sort of exists after the fact, because you're able to look back on this constellation, this massive multiplicity of desiring machines. And at that point, you're able to say what the affects they produced were. And 
as they've come out and you've ended up, uh, I made myself breakfast this morning. Uh, and as I was cooking the egg, the hand pan moved, burned thumb, fry egg, heat nose, smell, smell. Like they, these are nonsense words, but this is kind of how desiring machines function a lot faster, a lot more of them. But I like the smell of eggs. And that's all I do. Brooks likes the smell of eggs, comes out the other side. The first step, it's not about necessarily production of being good or bad, harmful or not. It's not at all about that. It's the the production of production that yields ultimately in a large sort of uh, multiplicity, the illusion of subjectivity that you can then go, oh, that was me. So it's, those are the way the three steps. So it's the first two that basically are oscillating with the third coming in consistently, because again, it's, it's all imminent, it's all happening uh, all the time, with the third stepping in and you being able to say that you did all of it and it's all you. None of them are choices though. Yes, of course, I, I think I never uh, uh, saw it as a choice. Um, rather, why I think the, the, the judgment comes in is in the sense that for something to, to be satisfied, you have to know its limits. Does that make sense? Let me step in here because I think I see where you're going with this. Um, so as production is happening, as the breast and the the mouth are, are doing their thing, right? A constant change is happening, right? The functionalities are happening. Production is changing. This is part of the body without organs falling back on production because production is changing during the process itself. Connections and braids are possible during that. So the reason I don't want to say judgment there is we don't want to, I don't want to suggest that the body without organs determines that final satisfaction, because I'm not sure there is a final satisfaction in that sense, because I don't want to do the odd thing, because I, I suspect that's where this might be going. Um, and what I think is perhaps a little bit more appropriate than an ought, um, question is to say like is to talk about how the product how, how this is changing as it's happening because in that sense right we're seeing different connections we're seeing all this uh these flows as part of the flux and so this is to talk about not only difference but changeability as the as the connections are happening uh, i still find it difficult but i, I guess that judgment is not the correct word in the sense that um, I'm not trying to produce an art. It's just that um, I feel like they have commentary on the specific con categories because it already has so many assumption on what is able, what your what design machines are able to produce. In the sense that Kant has a very limited interpretation of um, uh, what categories things can be perceived through or produced through. At the same time, once you start talking about satisfaction, it, it really does sound like a like a Kant category, for example, um, uh, um, uh, dimensions, like, for, uh, like physical dimensions of something. Okay, I think I see where you're going with this now. Okay, so it's not so much the lot there. Um, it's the functionality with the body without organs, I think would be the, and again, I, I'm leaving Kant to Varun in his essay, but I think where I can at least begin to satisfy that 
is that the body without organs and the functionalities, the body without organs is is giving is enabling these functionalities and these desiring machines to happen, right? But this isn't a sense of duty if we're going into the ethical. In a similar sense, what the body without organs is doing here, right, is something that we usually want to call memory. But for the unconscious, we're talking about a recording process. So there's not like that teleological element. This is to say that the functionalities and the distribution of libidinal energy are being enacted and enabled by the body without organs during the synthesis. I can't, I'm not sure I can take it too much further than that to give you a fuller action, but I see the parallel you're trying to draw. I think it's a parallel that I that I tripped over earlier and, and previous week, uh, but but uh, previous week I maybe tripped over the uh, parallel with Aristotle, uh, in the sense that um, there, because in in Aristotle's thinking, um, things can be satisfied through reaching a certain point of completion, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Um, so the idemonia, yeah. But aside yeah. from the ethical um, uh, judgment on whether it's good or not, just the process of determining whether something can be satisfied is already a sort of, um, let's say, constraint, right? Yeah, I can see that. And so I'll, I'll turn over to Brooks right after I read this quote from page 18, because I promised I would qualify. The celibate machine itself is not a paranoiac machine, however. Everything about it is different. It's quads, it's sliding carriage, it's shears, needles, magnets, rays. Even when it tortures or kills, it manifests something new and different, a solar force. So back to the solar anus. In the second place, this transfiguration cannot be explained by the so-called miraculating powers the machine possesses due to the inscription hidden inside it though it in fact contains within itself the most impressive sort of inscriptions, compared with the recording supplied by Edison for E. Future. A genuine consummation is achieved by the new machine, a pleasure that can rightly be called autoerotic, or rather automatic, the nuptial celebration of a new alliance, a new birth, a radiant ecstasy, as though the eroticism of the machine liberated other unlimited forces age 18. And the name of the artist I was looking for was Duchamp. <laughs> That's where the celibate machine, they get the term, I believe it's Duchamp. But doesn't doesn't the imminence of, of some sort of pleasure that you're describing now needs something that can experience that? So that, that would be the subject consummated. Yeah, it's what comes at the at the end. Yeah, it's a, yeah, it's what comes at the end. That that's that's actually not even the simple answer. That's just the right answer. <laughs> so things are experienced uh, afterwards. So it, there's again the eminence of experience uh, is is very much what they're tied to here. Damn it! It's 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 all it's all coming together now. Like it's uh, it's all falling into place. <laughs> it's a really fascinating way to look at things because, again, the. There is a, also a sort of a privileging of the idea of the productive uh, as a positive. And I, I don't mean a positive force overall, but 
uh, that um, the the idea that a thing is produces and produces itself is is very. Uh, there's a cool aspect to the whole thing. I really like, but I want to talk about uh, a handful of uh, sort of secondary steps, which is uh, the things that Jack was sort of getting at, which is the paranoiac machine, celibate machine, miraculating machine, schizo process, all of these things, and where where they kind of come in and how they how they function. Because uh, a big deal to this is uh, since this is effectively uh, the shared experience of humanity, all of us go through this and all of us pretend to exist due to our desiring machines. Uh, this gets into the, uh, and they spend basically the whole books trying to prove this, uh, that the idea of uh, why a man desires to be oppressed, why fascists desire their own oppression, is not so much that they were tricked into it, but it's it's actually due to some pretty basic processes that we exist in. So uh, the the first of these I want to talk about is is the schizo process, which is, uh, I think we'll end up going a great deal more into, especially when we do our A Thousand Plateaus reading. But uh, the nature of uh, connections and the ability for us to constantly find new ones and connect to them and think about all the different cool ways things can connect, not how things ought to connect is a pretty fantastic way to think about how the schizophrenic process, not schizophrenics, but the schizophrenic process operates and why they consider it to be liberating. Uh, the opposition to that would be the paranoiac machine. Jack, did you want to take a crack at that and explain a bit? Um, yeah. I have some quotes, but I, I can't. I use the control button for push to talk, so I'll get to the quotes in a moment. But... Okay. So during the first synthesis, connections happen, right? Uh, we have the, uh, the, the linear series, right, which is binary, an organ machine and an energy machine. When, this when the body without organs is inserted in the process of production here, and the recording surface um, is, is, right, is placed in between the desire machines and the body without organs, the body without organs begins um, distributing libidinal energy, right? Because now it's passed into Newman. This distribution allows for basically two processes, but I would also say there, there's a simultaneity about them, at least in the sense that they give the example of Judge Schraber, whose organs had gone, um, had, had uh, become decrepit, had de passed away in a sense. They're miraculous in the sense that he becomes, say, able to eat again. But they, so this would be your schizophrenic process, right? The body without organs is attracting the desiring machines, and therefore the point signs are creating a functionality that is attractive in that sense. However, there's also the repulsive, which would be the paranoiac process. So this would be where Judge Schraber, during the eating process, right, there's also the paranoiac machine of God that is trying to get it to stop. And you have this counterplay. Uh, I don't want to say counter. You have this interplay of those two forces of the attractive, the miraculative, or like the schizophrenic there. And you have the paranoiac, um, the paranoiac, the repulsive there. In this sense, what Brutz is getting at is like the exclusive and inclusive disjunction. So with the inclusive disjunction, and the schizophrenic process, right? Because they say the schizophrenic is the universal producer, 
all these connections or this bricolor aspect of the schizophrenic is productive in that sense, is actively connecting and therefore is actively um, changing, right? And the body without organs enables that. Simultaneously, there's also the, um, the either-or distinction without the either-or-or. So in this sense, you've got like the paranoiac where you have the, um, you have just the splitting, right? So instead of, uh, they give the example of Malone, right? Walking, then talking, then the way that this process is changing throughout, it's happening, right? As it takes place, it is itself changing. In this sense, like the, the paranoiac here would be this or that. And so they're going to go to walk this out further to say that this can also be paralogistic, right? Because with the Oedipal, you're looking to triangulate yourself in the in the Oedipal um, apparatus, right? So you're either the father or the mother. You're either the father or the son. You're either this, you know, this sense of the either-or distinction becomes uh, exclusive in that the functionalities become extremely limited. And part of the paranoiac mindset, because the functionalities are limited, they're limited by the BWO. Am I right there, Jack? Depending on where we walk it out, yes. It's in relation yeah. to the BWO, but always in relation to the Socius, too. So there's that simultaneity. Right. But yeah, right. it, it, uh, it's related so the, to the BWO and the Socius, yes. So as, as the BWO limits... The, the paranoiac has the, uh, the the way of coping or the way that you sort of get around that is you begin effectively celebrating that limitation. Uh, as you don't have those connections, as you have, uh, you know, separation and all of those things, and you're not finding uh, satisfying connections. Uh, again, satisfying connections can be all sorts of things, but if you're not finding them, uh, you, you, need, you need that. That's, a, that's part of that production that needs to produce. And so because basically you're overindulging in anti-production, uh, the, the sort of nature of that and the way that that miraculates becomes a celebration of the uh, repression itself. Maybe a very short read, I guess. Maybe it's absurd. Jack, Ken? Uh, yeah, it can be, right? If, if, sorry, if we're talking about subjectivity, with the either-or distinction, this is one of the examples they give, right? If the subjectivity in the paralogism is the Oedipal subjectivity, and they, they're very clear, they don't say that the Oedipus is impossible, they don't take it off the table. Their point is to say, right, if you accept this point about the Oedipal subjectivity and that's all that's available to you, then there's no sense of becomings and difference becomes a problem here, right? Because everything is triangulated into Oedipus. Uh, I guess an interesting point is that, so for Lacan, the subject sort of seems to change, even though he says that he is like the true reader of Freud, where like you can't know anything about the subject, where any any self-knowledge is paranoiac knowledge, and, and the subject is totally limited to the refractions of language and identification. Yeah, and that's part of their move to, so that's one of the important distinctions, I think, too, is that like, Lacan's paranoiac knowledge, I think, would be kind of different than Deleuze and Guattari's in the sense that, like, correct me if I'm wrong, but for Lacan there, he's kind of got a Das Ding, right? Like a primary narcissism with that. Is that correct, Jim? 
No, he does away with primary narcissism as like so a sort of fantasy to structure desire. Lacan's move is to say that uh, Oedipus is a total myth and there's nothing necessary about it. That, that, the, that the idea that there was somehow at some point in time a unity between child and mother and there's a trauma after that split and then the death drive is like a repetition to try to get back to the nostalgia of that moment of unity. His move is to say there is there was never any sort of unity and therefore primary narcissism is just like any other fantasy uh, that structures desire. Oh, actually, then there would be something of a similarity there, right? Because Oedipus would be part of the codification of desire there, or the decoding and recoding of desire. Right. So I would agree that uh, eventually Lacan does make the move to um, to speak about Oedipus as a myth, the myth of Oedipus, um, and sort of dismantle the... Uh, uh, <clears throat> yeah, I guess the connection between the symbolic and the imaginary. So, yeah, it sounds like he is in agreement to some extent with uh, what's happening here. But I would also bring in uh, what's fairly new. I for think me. it's interesting that Angus put the body without organs as the contours for the way subjectivity tends to happen. And, and then you've just asked, do we mean to say myth in the sense that Oedipus doesn't take place? No, that it takes place, but that it's not necessary. It's uh, not like, yeah. Ken, a uh, uh, corridor was, I think, in the middle of a point. I don't know oh, if you could hear him. I can't hear him. I'm so sorry. It's okay. Corridor, go ahead. Yeah. I, can I be heard? Is it difficult to hear me? Because I'm uh, on I think I think Ken had everyone muted and turned down. Okay, I just wanted to add dovetail onto that sort of new Bergsonian, um, uh, you know, an anti antithesis to what Ken was saying earlier about the fragmentation um, of the subject, something to the effect of the fact that uh, the <clears throat> the subject is always susceptible to the uh, snapshots that are happening around. Um, an identity, and he begins to kind of dismantle the psychoanalytic point around um, the notion of these uh, symbolic snapshots, because as they add up into an assemblage um, sequentially uh, to make up an identity for the subject, they miss a lot about the nature of the flows um, that are effectual, that aren't necessarily um, symbolic. So he he does take a, a different um, teleology, I guess is the word, or maybe uh, could be the incorrect word, but his approach to seeing what the subject goes through as a process, which I think Deleuze and uh, Guattari built on at some point um, as a process that uh, basically purges away a lot of the notion of the static type of snapshot perspectives that um, are coming to the uh, subject from the outside. 
which tend to miss the various flows that uh, that one could be experiencing as a process. And and that everyone ultimately is experiencing as a process. It's the the other part of this that we're, when we when we're talking about. Um, these desiring machines and the celibate machines, the paranoiac, the schizo, all of that. Um, again, we are trying to get away from the idea of it being sort of centered around your subjectivity, that there is only a handful of things sort of behind you in a line that determine who you are. Instead, you are at the center. Your subjectivity is the creation of the center of a lot of these desiring machines that themselves actually operate in sort of their own apparatus eye that uh that produce as well so you're there's a, there's a lot of shit happening before you get to the point of subjectivity and that's the part that gets really interesting when you're talking about instead of a singular unconscious and i think that's uh one of the big pushes that they make especially after lacan who spends most of his time well he takes on a lot from freud uh the joke they make about lacan is that uh he detonated all of the pillars with dynamite and they simply fell right down into the holes that he blew up, uh, basically doing nothing to the idea of Oedipus. Uh, the, the way that they tackle subjectivity and the way that they tackle its production and the production of the unconscious is very much, uh, I don't want to say a pluralized thing, but far more complex. And so when we talk about the celibate machines, the paranoiac and all these, the, the desiring machines attempt to break the body without organs happens a lot of different ways. And it's not simply right, but right before you exist. And it's not simply the things that you've done or the things your body has directly touched or your partial objects. There's a lot of things working in towards that creation. Yeah, I would agree with that. And, um, you know, being able to express oneself and, and it's a different paradigm. So for me too, who, who comes from, having accepted and worked through a lot of the psychoanalytic paradigm to get this whole new frame, paradigmatic frame um, of perception, uh, it takes some time to, to begin to speak differently. So I tend, when in describing it, I tend to still have like a, a, um, a central, central uh, place from where I speak, where I think that uh, and, and that's a very psychoanalytic kind of subject. So I think that there's a, a lot of shift in the expression once, uh, you know, once I grok or, or anybody groks the, the nature of the fact that there's nothing particularly figurative that needs to be grokked, but rather this process. And, and I think there's, a, you know, a different, I'm not sure if that's it ontological or teleological, but th there is that difference between um, the two paradigms. So uh, we have, uh, I think about, I'm gonna do another 10 minutes uh, because we started a little bit late. Um, and yes, Heinlein would be very happy that someone finally used the term grok. Kent's right. <laughs> it's about time someone needed to someday. Um, so uh, since we have uh, the time left, I'm gonna open up uh, because I don't think uh, we'll be able to dive into anything more complicated, but I do want to spend a little bit of time answering questions because I know we have a lot of people in here who've been making a lot of comments in chat. And uh, please, if you have uh, uh, questions or comments, dive in. Otherwise, I'm just going to ramble for a little bit. I just wanted to bring up, this is 
kind of related to the the inclusive inclusive versus exclusive disjunction thing that we touched on a little bit, but um, can that protevi thing that you shared about the organism, the history of the organism, um, had this great line in there about how Oedipus is basically this massive cultural re-territorialization in response to a massive de-territorialization at the level of the organism, like the human organism. So like, because all of these possibilities opened up, um, you know, bodily possibilities, basically, uh, there was this massive sort of re-territorializing reaction. And the possibilities are inclusive disjunction, and then the re-territorialization would be the exclusive in Oedipus. Oh, I really like that. Um, and I'm actually going to follow that up with another line that I found that I really like that it that talks about the creation of subjectivity through this uh, on subjectivity. It comes forth with an exhilarating cry. So that's what it was. So it's me. So it's me. It's mine. Describing the jubilation of this me, Deleuze and Guattari replaced the Cartesian cogito with a more fundamental sentio. The basic phenomenon of hallucination, I see, I hear, and the basic phenomenon of delirium, I think, presuppose an I feel on an even deeper level, which gives hallucinations their object and thought delirium its content. Descartes' cogito ergo sum, I think, therefore I am, is a logical deduction, giving rise to a necessary eternal truth. My act of thinking proves I do exist. But Deleuze and Guattari's sentio ergo sum, I feel, therefore I am, registers a contingent ephemeral process of emergence. I only exist to the extent that I feel, and in the very instant that I feel. The subject is not a stable, persistent entity, but a momentary flash of self-enjoyment, an ecstatic tremor of jouissance. Um, Paul asked a question. Can we talk about the nomadic versus the uh, segregative use of the third synthesis? Um, so that the third synthesis, as, as we move from nomadic to segregative, one of the things that we need to realize is that the process in its nature, depending on how the first two have sort of happened and where it's been weighted between production, which enables us to have satisfied connections, uh, and anti-production, which breaks connections to allow new connections to form, uh, Let's assume that there is, uh, there's not, but I'm just going to do this because I don't know how else to explain it. Uh, there is a balance that 50-50, you want a lot of your connections to work, you want a lot to break out, and there's a healthy sort of spot that like things are good, that whatever. Um, on the other side of things though, when you get to the point of subjectivity, there are personality types that emerge. Uh, through that subjectivity, how you relate to production connections and how you find the differences in things and how you separate out the world. When you land on, let's say, the more schizo process, which is the, the enjoyment of uh, connections, the satisf satisfaction of connections without too much anti-production being in there, without being broken by sort of things being inserted or a body without organs improperly impeding itself uh, in the process, you come out with more of a nomadic uh, a way of behaving inside of the world, you as the subject that is produced. On the opposing side, the segregative or the paranoiac that comes out of the other side uh, sees uh, a world where they are unable to find the satisfaction. And because of that, uh, as the satisfaction is sort of distanced, as they are repulsed by the body without organs, as those desiring machines are constantly pushed away, 
the the miraculating that takes place has them almost invest overly over invest in the body without organs and the segregation the the grid the the hard lines between things become something that is deeply valuable to you and your subjective process so the segregative use the segregative uh, subject that comes out of that is the paranoiac i would say the fascist side of things uh, territoriality and subjectivity change within the nomadic segregative is where change and difference are exclusionary jack put it really really nicely uh, let's see uh, the reading topic for tomorrow. Uh, so uh, tomorrow uh, we are going to be continuing our reading into a one three, uh, which I believe gets starts getting into a lot of these things of anti Oedipus. Uh, it's our rereading for the I don't know second time, second of four hundredth. I assume that is what tomorrow is going to be. Uh, any other questions? Any other thoughts? I, I'm happy to sit in awkward silence. Don't worry. I edit this out of the podcast like this. There's a lot more silence in these recordings than people think. I edit it all out because I'm happy to sit here and force you people to talk. So it sounds like the idea is that the subject is produced by like it's like a retroactive account for sensation. Can you explain what you mean by retroactive? Like you have a sensation and then you reflect on the sensation and then that somehow means that I exist. Yes, with with the step in there of the recording process and the miraculating that it isn't so much that you happen to exist and then you look back on it. It's that through the process of this, these things begin to take shape in a way that you're able to justify that you exist and that you did these things. Yeah, yeah, that's sort of what I'm trying to point at, um, because, you know, uh, I'm not necessarily like I can try to control my environment to a certain extent and, and make sure I have sensations on some sort of schedule. Uh, but at the end of the day, I can't without any sort of quote unquote external force have a sensation. I am not the arbiter of the sensations in my body, but yeah. yeah. Yes. And I, and I, I compare it a lot to, uh, uh, the auteur director uh, in film is a term labeled to people who often use say things like I made a movie and they say like, that was my film. I did that. I've worked for a few of them in my time uh, and I've known a lot of them. Uh, there is an amazing thing that happens that after the film's done, they did all the work. Uh, and it's, it's not so much that, uh, that it, it's produced that, that, they did all the work or it's not so much that they're like hyper egotistic. It's these things are so complex that when the thing happens and you come out the other side, it's very easy to tell yourself that you did the whole thing. It's a, the, the nature of how these things are organized and put together are so complex. It's why the BW exists. The, the sheer complexity of desiring machines and the massive multiplicity makes it impossible for us to parse all the little bits. And so we have to do something with that information and all of that exists. And through that, suddenly I have all of these sensations and I'm combining them. And as I'm combining them right now, as I'm talking to you, subjectivity is being made and it feels, I feel, I feel. And that's the, oh, I feel. And therefore, because I feel, I'm the one who decided to, you know, reread Antioedipus. And I'm the one who decided to do all of this. And I'm, I'm Brooks, who's going to cook lunch very soon and like that's kind of how it works 
Mm -hmm. So to walk that further, and this is an important point, right? That eye in that example is the eye moving through the assemblage, right? Is very important for the subjectivity here. To get at your point about the reflectivity, I would say no, only because that still sounds like we're going into consciousness and like the Husserl I know is through Sartre's essay on, on the transcendence of the ego. And so that would be like reflect, reflective consciousness. So this is not a reflective unconscious in that sense. The question is to get at how do we get a subject, right? The subject's produced. Well, how is it produced through the three syntheses? Yes, at, at no point is there a conscious effort inside of this. It's the the subject is made and the subject feels. And that's that's why I really like that paragraph I read because it's I feel, therefore I am, is very much what it is. It's a constant state of feeling and therefore a constant state of production and therefore a constant state of being created as a subject. Uh, Corridor says, uh, text and beliefs are encodings for perceptions of the registering of other mechanisms for the affect. That's a loaded sentence. Uh, what is the structure of the flow or we'll try to grab the partial object and give it an identity? Um, yeah, I was quickly trying to um, uh, write out the, the, the thought around the difference between, once again, kind of... Uh, in a, in a dialogue with Ken, Ken's point around the, uh, the arising of the affect and um, uh, perception around the affect. So uh, I wanted to precurse that with the fact that text and beliefs uh, are encodings. And so here we find in Anti-Oedipus the, the notion of decoding and recoding um, the perceptions or the affects uh, in a way that's different than earlier psychoanalytic schools of thought. Because it's the psychoanalytic school that creates a particular text and essentially subconscious beliefs, um, which uh, try to give structure to partial objects. And there's a kind of grasping there um, and then let, and then letting go. So I don't know. I mean, that's may not be the case for all of them. It may be a misinterpretation on my part. Uh, but I think I'm onto something where, where the different systems here, for lack of a better word, uh, are at play around the, um, the difficulty with, with structuring flows. That would actually be, I think, uh, a worthwhile thing. I'm going to take that back. We may do a whole thing on flows and how they work. And then we'll, that's also, I think, part of when we start talking about the socius, I think both of those go together nicely. So I may, I'm going to, you're going to hate me. I don't think I'm going to be able to answer that in any semblance of short order because it's, it's a very complex thing in and of itself. Uh, especially when we start talking about the coding of flows, the decoding of flows, how they operate, how they work. There is a lot to be talked about there. So I'm going to save that for another day. I'm so sorry. We will get to it. I do promise we will find a way to get to it. Um, if I may also, I think that uh, Lacan underscored uh, that the paranoiac and the schizophrenic are, are both uh, suffering through uh, imagos of the, of the broken body. And uh, 
I think that that's the natural progression of those desire machines. I think that they're relentless and they can, you know, obviously lead to really uh, hor horrific uh, corners of, of the world. Yeah, be careful there. The desire machines that are paranoid and schizophrenic, they're not, there's no lost totality. The body without organs is not a totality or a lost totality. Yeah, and this is where I wanted to, I mean, it'd be nice to, at some point in time, have a conversation about the difference between the body without organs and uh, Lacan's uh, big other, um, because they have similarities, and then they have, like, absolute differences in places, too. Um, I Actually, I think I can answer that, because I, uh, the, the short version is uh, Lacan's big other has the implication of being a uh, an observer, uh, a subject in and of themselves, at least in some semblance of way that is perceiving, that is taking in, that is judging, that is choosing. Body without organs does none of that. It simply is saying, this is what things are. It doesn't tell you how things ought to be. It is not saying that there's moral judgments. It is saying, here's what things are. This is it. There's no intensity there. There's no judgments, no side things. The similarities that they share is that the big other in Lacanian, sort of the way he talks about it, the way Lacan talks about it, and other sense is that it's one of the big shapers that determines why we behave how we do. I'm doing it because I'm worried about the gaze of the big other. I want to make sure that blah, blah, all of that stuff. I want to be unjudged and good. Uh, the, there is an intentional as yes, Jack, uh, the, there's a super egoization there where it's judgment and I'm piling into it. And it's, uh, all of those things. The BWO doesn't have that. It's, very much just the simple recording process in the sense of every time I do a thing, I make a notch, good or bad. Uh, I've done 10 million things. When I look at the thing uh, that is the body without organs, I see effectively myself. I see who I am. And that thing is what shapes and envelops all that we do. And it's not so much that it is judging. It is not so much that it is super egoizing. It is that it determines what... Uh, what I sort of see as myself or the limits or the way my connections need to be. So there's a, there's a separation. I, I would almost say, again, the superego has an implication of being almost a, a subject in and of itself or a decision-making apparatus or a judging one, as far as I understand it. BW has none of that. Yeah. The, the decision-making, oh, sorry, CPT. I just wanted to say the, the, the concept of like a superego big others uh, is sort of like an after effect. The big other is, is just the, uh, the organization. I mean, it is the locus of, of the chain of signification. And, and then it has like breaks in it or whatever. Um, and it's, and this is, it's really close. And for a long time, and actually I, I gave a Ted talk on, on how chains of signification work and sort of the eminence of experience. It was when I didn't really understand to lose. Uh, the, the way I've always read and I always attached to it was that we basically have uh, this massive chain of signifiers that uh, are how sort of the shaping of us and our life tapestry and the big other being the, you know, this sort of determiner of that. The, the problem I've always had with that and the, the thing that's itched at me is that uh, it sort of privileges very specific experiences as part of that, very specific signifiers as being part of that chain. Uh, whereas 
there's millions and billions of them I've experienced in the course of my life due to the acceleration of uh, content in general and experience over the last 20 years, it's become uh, immeasurable. Uh, Deleuze almost, and I, and again, a lot of people will, whatever, I'm going to piss someone off. The, the idea of the chain basically being molecularized into tiny little bits and saying, look, there's all of these flows. It's not a chain of signifiers. It's a chain of partial objects. And that chain, there's millions and billions of them that are constantly firing off and doing. And here's how they work. And their production is subjectivity. Now, along the way, they write into the world essentially what the big other kind of is, but without any judgment. It's not sitting as a judgment. The paranoiac will end up in that place where they think that they're being watched or that God's watching them or that they're on the side of God or whatever because of the nature of how they sort of are repulsed by the body without organs. But the body without organs is not a judgmental uh, structure in and of itself. And I like that because it gives us a sort of baseline to say, cool, this all happens prior to subjectivity. Things that are coming out of that, machines that are happening all over can go in and fuck that up. How do we build machines that can uh, reinforce sort of the natures that we want within that? And so it's, it's, I think it works better for me because it molecularizes the idea of the signifying chain. And I think there's the big difference. Um, so all of this takes place prior to subjectivity, whereas Lacan sort of starts with the divided subject with a, like a gap in between. And that, and that gap is at the same time. So you said, so the Lacan actually privileges sig- the signifiers that aren't included in the big other. And so this would be sexuality. Um, yes. Yeah. Um, and, but that the, the lack in the other is the same gap in the subject. I think so. And it's, it's an interesting sort of setup. And again, they, they shit on Lacan and they make jokes about him, but they're incredibly, Guattari is incredibly influenced by him. It's, it's impossible to get away. And it's, not so much that it's it's his relationship to Lacanian thought, I think, is very similar to Deleuze's to Kant, where it's not so much that they like destroyed it or obliterated it or whatever. And they they shit on it a lot because they're French, and that's kind of a personality trait amongst French intellectuals. But it's much more that they actually go, look, you didn't go far enough. That's basically what they're yelling at people is like, look, you you're in the right direction. You just didn't take it. Here's how far it can go. And I'm sure. The next step is someone doing the same thing to Deleuze and Guattari, where we're like, hey, you guys didn't go far enough either. And there's this I, other. Yeah, it's not it's not in, included in, in it that it will be chaotic in outcome. I mean, it, I mean, incredible things can be achieved, especially whenever you're pursuing the ideals like this, like in, in discussions like this. But um, I, yeah, I just uh, I mean, either way, the, the desire machines can either can go either way in their totality. That's what I mean to say. Yes. Yeah. So um uh, Paul asked in the chat, and I want to make sure we get it because it's a great question. Is the misuse of the syntheses, segregative, bijective, and exclusive possible? Uh, and Jack responds, I'm just going to read it because it's spot on. Uh, misunderstandings are possible. They are psychoanalysis metaphysics. For instance, transcendent phallus is part of a paralogism that in turn can actually really be a problem as it re- reforms how desire is produced and is part of that process. So it's a uh, a huge problem is why they're they're flatly against Oedipus uh, and capital is because these are machines that essentially produce their own and they produce uh, their own sort of paralogism and fuck up that process and therefore misshape the subject that comes out of it. 
is is there a is there like a historicity to the body without organs? I don't. I, you have to be expand on that word. Uh, are they? Are they developed by history, I guess, through time? Like, are these crevices or canals uh, developed over time, I guess? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, Um, Yeah, I was wondering a similar question. Are there boundaries that are attributed to the body without organ as well? Like some sort of shape or tectonic or something some sort of uh well this uh, is you're you're now getting into i think this is where the fun theory part of it comes in because i i I will say i don't know my take on it has been that uh, the bwo is by nature the limits of our experience and what we understand the limits because it is the limits of our current recorded experience uh if everything we've had it ever done is recorded on the bwo we can't know anything beyond it I mean, that's the nature of it. It's uh, the old thing, you can't know what you don't know because that's it's, it's tautological, but that's actually what we're talking about here. So it's not so much that I can see, oh, that's where the BWO goes to. I can't see because if I could see the line, I'd be able to see the other side of it. So it's it's literally this sort of uh, thing that we go, oh, I've had, I've had all these experience, millions of them, and that's the shape. And I can't imagine or think of anything beyond it. It's the nature of the socius we live in as well. Uh, the uh, old line, uh, I believe it's Mark Fisher, uh, it's easier to imagine the end of the world than the end of capitalism. It's because we can't imagine anything beyond. We don't know where the edges are uh, because we can't. It's a nature of uh, experience. Yeah, and I think that there are, there are bodies without organs that are more or less open to new kinds of experience like the bwo of of oedipus is extremely limiting and that's kind of its purpose and then or like you know fractal bwos that operate by inclusive disjunction that are far more open to sort of new new possibilities of experience all right and i think with that i'm going to start closing it out any last questions Feel free to ask. There's no such thing as a stupid question here. I'm serious. There's literally no such thing because uh, this is, uh, I mean, everything we're saying is essentially mostly nonsense. So have fun. Ask ask some questions. All right. Well, with that, I'm going to thank all of you for joining us uh, for this fantastic roundtable. Uh, I hope we answered some questions. I hope some people came out with a better understanding and uh, uh, we will be doing it again in a week. Please join us tomorrow for our continuing anti-Oedipus reading. Uh, of uh, 1-3 and uh, next week we will be doing another round table and I don't know what it's going to be on uh, we'll figure it out I think Socius Socius is so shy so shy uh, but uh, we will see you all then thank you so much